Do you want to change the world? Maybe a better way to ask that question would be, as a Christian, are you supposed to change the world? Is that what you are called to? Is that what Jesus expects of you? Now, we might assume the answer to that question is yes. And there is plenty of motivational material out there urging us to do great things that change the world. A Christian writer called Tim Shorey talks about a billboard that he drove past one day. We would call it an advertising hoarding. And that huge poster said, be the spark that changes the world. How would you react if you saw a poster like that? How would you feel if you saw a poster like that? Well, this is how Tim Shorey reacted. He said, I'm 62 years old. I have been involved in Christian ministry for 39 years. And the spark has yet to happen. Despite all I've done, the world remains the same as always, only worse. There is no ignited the world line in my resume. We would say CV. So this Christian man wondered, am I a failure? Because I have not been the spark that changed the world. Well, this is his response as he thought about that question. He says, I am a simple guy with an uncomplicated calling. Get saved, love the triune God, be sanctified, love my wife, children, and neighbors, treat people with respect and justice, live a God-centered and gospel-saturated life. Help others do the same. Not that I don't care about the big picture. It's just that the big picture is actually a composite of eight billion little pictures. Change the world billboard vocabulary is momentarily inspiring, but it's ultimately disheartening, for global change rarely happens. It is better to know that on the day of accounting, we will answer for ourselves, our family, our church, and our neighbors. As men and women who have been given new life in Christ, we also have a simple, uncomplicated calling. We are to live faithfully and fully for God in our day-to-day -day situations. And we're to let him take care of changing the world. We're to let him figure out how our little life of faithfulness fits into the big picture of eight billion little pictures. Why do I mention this? I mention it because I think it sums up the main point the Apostle Paul is making in the passage we're going to look at this morning. Here is the lead-in to our passage. This is the verse we finished with last time. Paul says to Christians, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all 
in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, so we can ask, well, what do you have in mind when you say that, Paul? Turns out what Paul has in mind is the little details of everyday life. The little details of our relationships and responsibilities. This is where true spirituality goes to work. In the little details of our own little worlds. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 verse 18. And we'll read down to chapter 4 verse 1. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1184. And in the larger print Bibles, 1832. Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. And there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is God's word. And no doubt there are lots of other things Paul could have mentioned here. But when Paul chooses to illustrate what he means by whatever you do, he points to our everyday relationships and responsibilities. He gives three examples, and these examples do not cover everything. They're not meant to cover everything. Paul is showing here, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. When I say, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through him. When you think about your calling to live faithfully and fully for Jesus, this is the context. This is where you do it. This is where it happens. In a world of 8 billion lives, 8 billion little pictures, Paul says your primary calling is to live for Jesus in the five 
or 10 or 15 little pictures that touch you most closely. And as we read what Paul says, we immediately realize some of this is countercultural today. And the fact is, it was countercultural in Paul's day as well, just in different ways. The Bible is always countercultural. No matter where or when the Bible is being read, it will always challenge that culture in some way. Because no culture has everything right. In the culture these Colossian Christians lived in, two aspects of this passage would have been shocking. The first shock would have been the fact that Paul addresses wives, children, and slaves as responsible individuals who can make choices. Paul assumes when it comes to being responsible individuals, wives, children, and slaves are on a level with husbands, parents, and masters. He calls them all to voluntarily live in certain ways within those relationships. That was countercultural. The second thing that would have been countercultural in Colossae is what Paul says then to husbands, parents, and masters. The things Paul calls them to would not have been expected of them in the culture of the time. Of course, there were husbands at this time who loved their wives. There were fathers who were not tyrannical to their children. There were masters who provided their slaves with what was right and fair. But that was not a cultural expectation. It was going against the grain for husbands, fathers, and masters to be that way. Conducting relationships the way Paul describes here would be breaking the accepted mold of the time. And I would suggest to you the situation is pretty exactly flipped on its head in our culture today. The things Paul calls wives, children, and slaves to are countercultural today. The Bible is always countercultural. It is always calling us to break some mold or other that our culture has made for us. And by mold, we're not talking about the stuff that grows between the tiles in your shower, of course. We're talking about the kind of mold that is used to shape something. Most of us will have used little plastic molds to make ice lollies at some time or another. You fill the mold with squash, you put it in the freezer, and a few hours later you have got rocket-shaped lollies or whatever. On a bigger scale, molds are used to make sculptures or statues out of plaster or metal. And what we need to see is, sin has provided molds for our human relationships. Sin has set patterns. And if you and I are not intentional, we will find ourselves following those patterns and fitting into those molds that sin has provided for us. So this passage is about breaking old molds. 
And the first example Paul gives us is in the relationship of wives and husbands. And if we're going to understand what Paul says here, we have to go back to the beginning, to the opening chapters of the Bible. Genesis chapter 2 tells us this. After describing creation, Genesis 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Then three verses later, we're told, The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. As we read on, that helper turns out to be a woman, Adam's wife, Eve. Now, this is not the first we've heard about the man and the woman. Back in Genesis chapter 1, God commissioned both of them to rule over his earth, to be stewards of his creation. It was a job given to both of them. So here in chapter 2, a very delicate nuance is being added to the picture of Genesis 1. We're told God created Eve as a helper suitable to Adam. And the reason that adds a delicate nuance to the picture is that the word helper does not imply any kind of inferiority. In fact, elsewhere in the Bible, God uses exactly the same word of himself. He describes himself as our helper. And we would agree, I think, that God is not inferior to us in any way. So here, with Adam and Eve, Eve is Adam's companion in the work. She's not inferior to him. In fact, he needs her help. She's not a lesser version of the man. She brings something to the work that the man is not able to bring. Her contribution is vital if the work is to get done. And at the same time, calling Eve Adam's helper carries the sense of Adam taking the lead and Eve supporting him. What this means is the man and woman's roles are complementary. Not in the sense they're constantly paying each other compliments. Now to say their roles are complementary means there is a degree of difference in their roles. And both roles are equally necessary if the work is going to get done. Both their contributions are equally necessary. It's a delicate nuance that we find in the Bible. And because it's delicate, we have great trouble handling it well. Some people want to erase the nuance altogether by getting rid of any sense of difference in leading and helping. Others want to take this in the opposite direction. They want to turn the nuance into a blunt instrument that does actually view men as superior and women as inferior. But if we take the Bible seriously, we will not handle this in either of those ways. What we will notice, though, is how sin has marred the relationship described here in Genesis 2. Genesis 3 
records how the man and woman rebelled against God. And look at the result of that in Genesis 3. God says to the woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The words rule over were not used before sin came along. They're speaking about a harsh authority that was not present in the picture before sin. And so, with that in mind, we might take this statement to the woman to mean your husband will rule you harshly, but you'll be so attracted to him, you will so desire him, that you'll put up with it. We might take it that way, but actually, if we were to take the time to look at how that word desire is used elsewhere in these opening chapters of Genesis, if we had a little look at that, we would realize what's being said to the woman is, You will desire to overcome your husband, but he will rule you harshly. In other words, on both sides, sin exploded the delicate nuance God had created in the marriage relationship. The husband taking the lead and the wife being his companion in serving God. Sin set a new mold for husband and wife relations. And that mold is, when husbands lead, they will tend to do it not lovingly, treating their wife as an equal partner. Instead, they will tend to lead harshly. And wives, for their part, will tend to want to throw off any sense of their husband leading at all. Sin has given us the battle of the sexes as our mold. And isn't that what we're used to seeing? Husbands ruling harshly, or if they find they can't manage that, retreating into their cave to play with their toys, all the while griping about her indoors, or speaking about their wife in other disrespectful ways. And doesn't the mold we're used to involve Wives either dominating their husbands or if they can't manage that, undermining their husbands by speaking of them like they're Homer Simpson, the Egypt on the sofa. But what Paul is doing here in verses 18 and 19 is calling Christian wives and husbands to break that mold, to pursue the delicately nuanced relationship we saw before sin entered the picture. The sexes in partnership instead of in battle. The husband leading with gentleness and with love and respect. And the wife making a significant contribution to the marriage partnership. While at the same time, voluntarily submitting to the husband's lead. And just as we saw earlier that the word helper does not imply any inferiority because God calls himself a helper, so here with the word submit in verse 18. The New Testament uses the same word to describe God the Son's submission to his Father. So in the context of biblical marriage, the word submit, like the word helper, 
does not imply any sense of inferiority. Difference of role, yes, as with God the Father and God the Son, but inferiority, no. And as we pause here, we have to ask the question, has any Christian marriage fully broken the old mold created by sin? Probably not. Are some of you here this morning in marriages that are dominated by that old mold? Maybe yes. And so, for some of you here this morning, even thinking about this new way of marriage can be very, very painful. What's the way forward for us? Well, the specific way forward will need to be worked out in each specific situation. Because each situation is unique. No sermon could possibly deal with every situation. But here's something that does apply to every Christian marriage. The next step is never... It's never to take the verse here that applies to your spouse and throw it in their face. In other words, if you're a husband, do not have verse 18, the bit about wives, put on a brass plaque and stuck up on your wall. And if you're a wife, don't do that with verse 19, the bit about husbands. That's not what these verses are for. The way forward is for every Christian spouse to consider the verse that applies to them. To bring that verse to God, to lay it out before him, and to ask him to help you break the mold of sin with regard to that verse. Ask him to show you how you can be either a greater helper if you're a wife, or a greater, gentler lover if you're a husband. And that is not simply or even primarily about sex. Verse 19 is about loving care and service for our wives. The kind of love and care and service that Christ shows to his church, the New Testament tells us. And for both husbands and wives, this is about nurturing deep respect for our spouse. Respect that shows itself not just in our words, but in the tone of our words. This is about respect for our spouse that shows itself not just in our actions, but in the attitude with which we do our actions. Instead of worrying about changing the world, let's commit to changing the world of our marriage. Let's prayerfully figure out one step to take, probably one small step, one change to our way of speaking or acting that breaks the old mold sin has made for our marriage. Let's persevere in that step 
then let's figure out what the next step might be for us. Not for our spouse, but for us. And let's do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thinking about breaking the mold in a marriage relationship, that has already done most of the groundwork for us when we come to the next two relationships. The next one is children and parents. And we know all about the sinful mold for this relationship. We know it does not come naturally for children to obey their parents. It does come naturally for fathers to embitter their children so they become discouraged. What's being described in verse 21 is a father overcorrecting his children or belittling what they do. This is speaking about a father who's great at catching his kids doing something wrong, but he's not so interested in catching them doing something good. He always finds something to criticize, but he seldom finds anything to praise. And my observation would be, fathers, we tend to do better at encouraging our kids when they're little. But maybe we do less well when they're teenagers. And the result of that can be discouragement in our children. Meaning, they start to believe nothing they do will ever be good enough for us. So why even bother? Maybe they think they'll be better off looking for affection and encouragement and affirmation outside of their home. You'll notice that mothers are included in verse 20. Children obey your parents, but mothers are not included in verse 21. It's fathers do not embitter your children. Why the imbalance in that? Well, it is not because mothers are incapable of embittering their children. It's related to what we saw in Genesis chapter 2. It is God's intention that fathers take the lead. Parenting is certainly a joint responsibility for mothers and fathers, of course. But verse 21 shows us, even if the father is not the primary child carer day to day, he is to take the lead and set the tone in the parenting. He's not to withdraw from the responsibility and leave it all to his wife. And the lead that he takes and the tone that he sets is not to be that of a little dictator or of an overgrown child himself. He flips out when his children act like children. Again, fathers, I think we know our failures in this. I think we know how easily we do either go AWOL or alternatively, we wade in, all guns blazing, leaving a lot of resentment when we're done. So let's bring this to God. And in God's presence, let's figure out what steps we can take to break the old mold that sin has given us. 
Let's humble ourselves enough to ask our wives how we can take a better lead. And those of you who are children, I know actually we're all children, but verse 20 is talking to children who are still growing up. God has not given you perfect parents or guardians or carers. He hasn't given anyone that. But he has given you the parents or guardians or carers you've got. And he has given you the responsibility of obeying them while you're growing up. You might wonder, well, what if they tell me to do something the Bible says is wrong? Well, then you obey the Bible instead. But these verses are speaking to families in the church. So it is not very likely your parents will go against the Bible in this situation. Actually, they're trying to bring you up and guide you according to what the Bible says. Because they know the God who gave us the Bible made us and knows us best and loves us best. And so what the Bible tells us is good for us. Even when we can't see how it's good for us. So even though your parents aren't perfect, they are doing their best. And at this stage in your life, God expects you to obey them. When you're older, he expects something different from you. When you're older, you are to honor your parents which eventually might mean caring for them. So talk to your parents about this. Talk to them about how you can discuss things with them. Put your point of view, of course. Talk about how as you get older, they might want to give you more decisions to make on your own. But at the same time, let them know you are going to obey them. Even when you don't feel like it. Maybe some of you are in a situation where your dad isn't around or isn't involved. In that case, your mom is trying to do the job of both parents. So be doubly respectful and obedient to her. And verse 20 says, do that because this pleases the Lord. And maybe you'd say, well, I don't care about pleasing the Lord. Why don't you? He made you. He loves you. We know he loves you because he sent Jesus to die for you. And he is wiser than all of us. So why wouldn't you care about pleasing him? The last relationship mentioned here is the one that might at first seem totally irrelevant to us. We know that modern day slavery exists. Of course it does. It is a huge issue. But it's unlikely any of us here this morning are in that particular situation. And so what do we do with these instructions to slaves and masters? Well, it's helpful for us to know a bit about what slavery was like in New Testament times. There was the kind of chattel slavery we're used to learning about in history, where slaves were treated as their owner's property and they had no rights at all. 
That kind of slavery did exist in New Testament times, but it was not the norm. Generally, slaves had plenty of rights at this time. They earned a wage, and they could usually buy their freedom within seven years. Historians estimate that at this time, 85 to 90% of the inhabitants of Italy either were or had been slaves. 85 to 90%. Now, Colossae was not in Italy, but those percentages, that percentage was probably similar in the area of Colossae. Slaves worked in all sorts of jobs, from farm workers to architects, physicians, administrators, philosophers, writers, teachers, librarians. In many cases, they were the accountants and the estate managers for their masters. And when they earned their freedom, many slaves went into business with their former masters. Now, none of that means that slavery was a good thing. But it does mean the life of a slave in New Testament times was generally a lot closer to an ordinary working person than we might have realized. It was not the same, but it wasn't as different as we might have thought. Many of the churches mentioned in the New Testament would have been made up predominantly of slaves or former slaves. And here, Paul is not getting into what he thinks about slavery. He's talking to men and women who are in the situation of being slaves. And he's talking to masters who had slaves working for them. There may have been some of those in the church as well. In another New Testament letter, Paul says to slaves, if you can organize getting your freedom, then go for it. You are not duty-bound to stay a slave. But here he's talking to those who are not yet free. Sin has created a mold for the kind of relationship they're in. And Paul calls Christian slaves and masters to break that old mold. And we've acknowledged what Paul is speaking to here is not exactly the same as the situation of workers today, but without too much effort, we can apply it to work today. How does the sinful mold for workers tend to play out? Well, doesn't it often play out in workers trying to cut as many corners as they can to appear busy and productive? while doing as little work as possible? And where possible, passing the responsibility to someone else? Looking to minimize effort and maximize rewards? And even when someone is genuinely hardworking, how often is it really for the good of the company? We're used to seeing footballers kissing the badge on their shirt one week and then going to a bigger club for more money the next week. And that mindset shows itself in lots of work situations. It's less about the worker doing a good job for the company and more about them doing a good job for themselves. 
so they can move on. Now, it is not wrong to move jobs, of course, but the point here is our future ambitions shouldn't mean we jip whoever it is we're working for in the meantime. Paul's instruction to Christian workers is, whatever your work is, do a good job for Christ your Lord. Look at that in verse 22. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to carry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Back in verse 11 of this chapter, Paul told Christian slaves they are free in the sense that matters most. They belong to Christ. They're full members of God's family. And here he speaks to them, as we've seen, as responsible men and women. Men and women who can choose the attitude they bring to their work. And he calls them to choose not to cut corners, not to take advantage. They are to do their best, ultimately out of reverence for Jesus, their Lord. He's their real boss. He's the one they really work for. And what Paul is saying gives a dignity to whatever work we do. It might seem to go unnoticed. We might not get commended for it. We might not get a raise or a promotion for doing our work well. But we can do the most mundane work for Jesus our Lord. You may have heard about the time during the space race in the 1960s when the U.S. president visited NASA. The focus at that time was on beating the Russians to the moon. And as the president toured the NASA base, he was introduced to the man who cleaned the toilets on the base. The president didn't know that though, so he asked the man, what do you do here? And the man replied, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. That worker may not have had a glamorous job, we might say he wasn't going to change the world, but he knew his work was part of the big picture. His work had significance. And how much more can we say that as God's people? However mundane and unglamorous our work might be, however much we might hope to change it for another type of work, still, while we're doing it, we do it for Christ the Lord. We do it as well as we can, with honesty, with trustworthiness. And we might not know how exactly our little picture fits into the big picture, but we know that somehow it does. It brings glory to the Lord we serve. And even if our pay at the end of the week or the end of the month is pretty thin, we know, as Paul says, 
we will receive an eternal inheritance from the Lord. Verse 25 is a reminder to workers and to bosses. God does not favor one or the other of you. He calls you both to do what's right. And in the case of bosses, chapter 4, verse 1 says, that means providing what is right and fair. A right and fair salary, holiday entitlements, working conditions, so on. Because, bosses, as high as you may have climbed, you still have a master in heaven. And it's the very same master the toilet cleaner serves, if he or she is a Christian. And your master in heaven, bosses, calls you to break the old sinful mold where bosses exploit their workers. The sinful mold where bosses try to squeeze as much as they can from their workers while rewarding them as little as they can. As Christians, are we called to change the world? No. But we are called to change the little worlds we're part of. The little pictures that go to make up the big picture. Our daily relationships, our daily responsibilities. And these examples, as we've said, they don't cover everything. But they show us the way to change our little worlds. The big picture is that Christ Jesus is Lord. And one of the most significant ways we serve him is by committing to the daily work of breaking old sinful molds in our relationships. Let's ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, we've acknowledged some of our situations are not quite what we've seen here in this passage. Not all of us who are married are in a Christian marriage. Not all of us who have, we have Christian parents. Not all of us have Christian children. Not many of us have Christian bosses or Christian workers. But your word does speak to all of us. It does call each of us to live differently in our relationships. It calls us to approach our responsibilities differently. And as we think about our own situation, we realize how much we need your help. We desperately need your help. So will you help us? Help us to set new patterns for our attitudes and our behavior. Help us do it for the sake of Christ our Lord. In the little pictures each of us is involved in, let us show what a difference Christ makes in those little pictures. Help us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit in those day-to-day little things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Our final song asks 
our Lord to shine on us with his light so that our lives would reflect him in this world. Lord, the light of your love is shining.
And now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.